We've been in a series where we're looking at a letter called 1 Corinthians. And it's by a man named Paul, and it's to a church that was just beginning. And we're calling this our beginner's guide. And we've been looking at it last week, even on Easter. We were in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, we're going to back up to one chapter that we skipped over, and that's going to be in chapter 14. And so let me go ahead and warn you what today's sermon is going to be about. We're going to tackle a lot of stuff. Here's some of the things that we're going to tackle today's sermon. Prophecy, speaking in tongues, women being silent, submission, submission, and worship issues. Does anybody want to trade spots with me right now? It would be very easy to ask the question, Scott, why in the world would you attempt to tackle all of that in a sermon? Because that's what Paul does in this letter. It all shows up in 1 Corinthians 14. So all of these issues. Now, I'm well aware that these, in many ways, are hot topics, triggering issues for some. Many people, you already walk in and you've got an idea about them on where this should go. And so now you're waiting to hear me say some things or not hear me say some things to prove some points, disprove some points. I realize, and for many, it's kind of a loaded room at this point. And so I'm asking for what I often refer to with the staff as an EGR, okay? This is an EGR situation. EGR stands for any situation that's really messy and extra grace is required. I'm asking for extra grace right now because I am going to do my best to move through and show you what Scripture says. But I know there's going to be some moments where I'm going to get to some parts of this. And you may want to push back. And you may even get upset because this may challenge something you've long held. Or you had hoped I would say something and I don't say it. Or you hoped that I wouldn't say something, I end up saying it. And you may feel kind of a little animosity towards me rising up. I get it. I'm going to ask you to remember something. When you feel there's maybe a little anger, maybe a little malice towards me, I just want you to keep this thought in your mind before you fire off the email, okay? Here's the thought. It was Sela who took down the steeple. Okay? His phone number is... No. So why would we preach hard scriptures? Why even do this? Because... There's not a seminary class that would say, tackle all this in one thing. Why would we preach difficult passages? And we're going to look at some difficult passages, and we're going to be moving quick today. Why we would preach is simply this. I've got three reasons. First reason is this. We take the Bible seriously. I believe that over my time here, there is at least an understanding that you and I have, if you've been with us for a while, that we take the Bible seriously here. And part of that taken seriously means that I don't pick and choose simply what we're going to study. That we don't try to avoid things. We've been in a study moving through this letter, not quite verse by verse, but section by section through it. This is the next section that we've come to. And we take it seriously, and we believe God has something for us. The second reason ties right into the first. 
we want to be consistent in our approach. Now, you may not have grown up in church, and I am so glad you're here. So you may not understand this next term that I use. There's a, ver- there's a phrase we call proof texting. Proof texting is where we come up with some issue in church, we all debate about it, and then what somebody does is they run to the Bible, they find a chapter and a verse, they yank it out of context, and they plot and they say, there, I proved my point, you've proof texted that. Well, the problem with proof texting is it creates a very inconsistent approach to the Bible. Because it means we pay attention to some verses and we have to completely ignore some others. And I'm going to show you some of that in today's message. But we want to have a consistent approach because I don't want it to ever be, I believe in Jesus because of Scott, but I understand who Jesus is because I see what God is telling me in Scripture. And the last one simply this. We live in submission to Scripture. We live in submission to, we believe Scripture has an authority over our life. And you may not be there yet, but I want you to know where we're coming from. That there's an authority of Scripture that God has designed us in such a way. And He's left us this Word. He's given us His Word in a way that if we will align our lives with that, it does not equal you'll be rich and comfortable. It does mean that you will find fulfillment and purpose and salvation and relationship and you will come face to face with the God that created you and loved you enough that he would send Jesus to die on a cross for your sin in your place. So for those reasons, we don't avoid difficult, hard scriptures. Now, I'm not going to do it justice today. So I'm going to give a one-time offer here. If you have some questions that are not resolved, because I cannot cover everything about all those subjects that we're going to try to cover today, but there's some unresolved questions. If you want, pull your phone out right now, take a picture of this phone number. This is our text and church number. Many of you have already got it. And you want to send me a question, you can send me a question about what we talk about today. And I'm, the only thing I'm going to ask is you actually include your name. This, this is not something where I think there needs to be privacy and this is not confessing sin. This is send me your honest question about it. And a question does not count if your question is simply how dare you. Okay? But send me your question. I will find some ways to respond to them all. I'll either personally or interactive. Well, I'll put something together. But I'm going to leave this open for about 24 hours and then we're going to shut it down. Okay? And we're going to move on to other stuff. But if you have a question, I realize I'm not going to say everything that can be said about this topic. So there's going to be gaps. And if one of the gaps is really concerning you, shoot me your question. And we'll definitely do our best to address it. Okay. Now, have a Bible, have a phone, have a tablet, whatever, open to 1 Corinthians 14. Have your scripture journal open because we're about to move quickly. As you're finding that, I'm going to remind you some things about Corinthians. Corinthians is an occasional letter. Okay, we've got to remember that. Corinthians was written, this letter was written to a certain people in a certain place in a certain time for a certain reason. And it's a corrective letter. So one of the reasons that we have this letter is because Paul, who founded this church and has now moved away from this church and is on planning other churches. He's writing back to this church and he's heard about things going on there. 
And between you and me, he's not happy about many of them. And so he's addressing to correct the situations going on. And so you need to read this as a corrective letter, and you need to read it with a certain tone. I, I know I often say there's not tone in emails, there's not tone in don't, into text messages. But you need to hear Corinthians with some sarcasm. And for some of you, it's like, hey, that's the best news I've ever heard. Sure. But you need to hear it with the sarcasm because he's trying to correct an issue, and he cares passionately about that, and you're going to see that in what we cover today. But remember, it's a specific letter, which means we've got to understand the context around it. We've got to understand what's going on in, in the history, and it's a corrective letter, and he's trying to correct something. That's the reason he's talking about these very things. So let's understand some of the context. The context of this letter, once again, um, first of all, you need to remember as we get to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is correcting a misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts. The week before Easter, we talked about spiritual gifts. Paul is writing about spiritual gifts because they are misusing their spiritual gifts. And in fact, you're going to see they've elevated one spiritual gift, speaking in tongues, above all the rest. And now there is a showmanship of it going on. I'm more spiritual than you because I speak in tongues. And there became this quest for the most powerful, the most dramatic, the most miraculous gift. And everybody was singling in on the speaking in tongues. And Paul is about to address that. Also remember that Corinth, what's going on there is they are highly influenced by what was happening in a nearby city known as Delphi. And because there is an oracle at the temple of Apollo at Delphi that would go into a trance as part of that worship, and this had great influence across the known world at the time. She would go into a trance, and she would have these ecstatic utterances. And there was a group of priests around there that would, would put them together in some kind of prophecy. But it was always very vague and misleading. It was kind of like opening a fortune cookie and trying to interpret, you know, what am I supposed to do with this fortune cookie? And so, but that practice was very prominent and had all kinds of influences across that part of the world. And remember, Corinth is the next port. And so as ships would sail, they would sail from Corinth to Delphi and on. They'd sail back from, to Delphi and back to Corinth and to the rest of the world. And so these are neighbor cities, and what happens in Delphi is influencing Corinth. And so they're being caught up in this ecstatic utterances, and it's not where Paul wants them to to be. And then the last thing, Paul is angry and his letter is filled with sarcasm and challenges. So you need to hear that going into it. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about prophecy and speaking in tongues. And so I'm going to give you a very quick primer on these two aspects of it and then we'll launch into our into our scriptures. First of all, biblical prophecy when you think of prophecy, it's not just telling the future. Some of prophecy was foretelling the future, and some of it was forthtelling, meaning speaking truth in a moment, speaking godly truth in a moment. But whenever it was speaking in the future, it was very specific. It's, it, it wasn't vague in what was going to happen, and it was very specific on God's going to do something. It was also 100% um, accurate. 
Every time a prophecy is given, it is fulfilled in unbelievable accuracy. Even if it was misinterpreted coming into it, it was, it's fulfilled in complete accuracy. Oftentimes, typically, there's a, it's time-sensitive. There's, there's a range of time that's going to come in. It's not just open-ended and someday, whenever, but there's a time and a frame given to it. What's more important is that it never contradicts God's Word. There's no prophecy that was ever given in Scripture or in the New Testament church as, as people are experiencing a prophet speaking that can contradict God's Word. If it did, it was not considered legitimate anymore. It would never do that. And the last one is, even non-believers knew that God's prophets were legitimate. There was something about what they were saying that even somebody that did not subscribe to a belief in Jesus yet recognized something, that there's a power going on, and maybe it was something that was being revealed in front of them that they had knowledge of, and they're like, how did you know? And oftentimes what, a, what could happen with a prophet is a, they would be in a worship service, somebody began prophesying perhaps even about calling out a certain sin. And somebody then would be broken by, how did you know that's what I'm hiding? How did you know that's what I'm carrying uh, with me? And so that forth-telling um, approach, but it would become very clear even to non-believers that this was legitimate. Okay, speaking in tongues, biblical tongue speaking. Here's what I believe is going on, biblical tongue speaking. Now, I'm going to say a lot of things going going forward that... There's lots of different interpretations on these. But, so what I'm going to do, to the best of my ability, is lay out what I believe, what we believe as, as a church here, what the shepherds um, believe in this church here, and what, how we claim. But I want you to understand, there is a wide range of interpretations on this. This is not a debate about is Jesus Lord or not. So I'm going to be as clear-cutting as I can, as forthcoming as I can with what we believe, but at the same time, I hold great respect and affection for somebody that may, perhaps has a different interpretation of these verses that we're going to talk about today, particularly when it comes to speaking in tongues. I have no problem fellowshipping with someone that sees it differently. Doesn't mean I don't think that the the interpretation I'm about to present to you is somehow inaccurate or weak. I'm totally behind it. I'll stand behind it. I feel like it's a great interpretation. But this is not what I would consider a salvation issue. And so I've had some very good um, conversations and relationships with some other pastors here in town that do practice speaking in tongues. I do not. We do not in our collective experience um, here. I'll give you the reason why in just a second. But I have no problem being in relationship with those those that do because they hold up Jesus as Lord and that he died for our sins and that you come to him for to answer all things. There's where Paul is going to draw draw his line. So here's what I believe is going on with biblical tongue speaking. I believe one, it's real languages. I believe when God implemented biblical tongue speaking, what you can do is you can go back into Acts chapter 2 and the first time you see us speaking in tongues is when they, the apostles stand up and they begin to preach into this multitude of a crowd that had come from all over the known world to celebrate, to celebrate the Passover and to celebrate the, um, 
the, the, the feasts that were going on in Jerusalem at the time, and they came from all parts of the world. They spoke all kinds of different languages. And so when the first sermon, gospel sermon is going to be preached, they're speaking in different languages so that it can be heard around the world. And I believe that when you see the word glacea, which is the, the word there in Acts and also here in Corinthians, it is the word for tongue, but what it's referring to is a real language that's actually spoken some, somewhere in the world and being received by someone. Second, its miraculous nature was undeniable. Every time you see it in the New Testament, it has this undeniable miraculous nature, which is one of the reasons that I believe it was actually a real language because somebody is there saying, I'm hearing this in my own language. I'm understanding this. When did you learn to speak and fill in the blank with whatever the language is? When did you learn that? And so this is undeniable. It cannot be faked. And there's some abuses out there, and even in our world today, that you would look at someone and you say, and I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying I could show you lots of abuses in the world where somebody's going, you go, that seems so fake if it's simply an ecstatic utterance that's going on. So it was always undeniable, and the believers would see that. I mean, it's even going to be affirmed in, in our passage today. And why is it provided? It was always provided to expand the gospel. Tongue speaking was provided to expand the gospel. So now we come to Corinth, Corinth Church. And here's what I believe is going on in the Corinth Church with that as a background. Is that, remember, Corinth's a port city. It has two ports on each side of the landmass, this isthmus. And so it's got boats coming and going both directions and people spending time. It is a multicultural city. And people are having to spend time there as they're waiting for the ship coming in and the ship going out. And so I believe one of the reasons that they're struggling with this is because it is one of the gifts that God was using at that time in this place that's so unique because they were still needing to experience the ability to speak to all of these languages that were crisscrossing this one city at this one time place. I think perhaps, maybe, I have no way of proving this, but maybe tongue speaking lasted longer in Corinth than it did in other places because they needed it. Because it was a part of what they were doing as they were reaching this ever um, diversified world that was crossing their paths. They are becoming less and less Jewish specific and more and more Gentile specific from all these different nationalities that were coming. I, I don't know that. It's not necessarily affirmed in Scripture, but I believe that could possibly be why Paul begins to address this. And it becomes a problem because everybody starts abusing it. The followers start abusing it. And now, in Corinth, in this town, or in this church, it becomes a problem. And what you have going on in this letter, from about chapters 11 through 14, Paul is addressing problems that they're having in worship. And tongues keeps coming up again and again and again. And so, 1 Corinthians 14 is he's trying to be corrective to a problem. And he's been digging through this problem. And he gets into really specific stuff. So, I'm going to go ahead and jump down in the interest of time. I'm going to start uh, 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to start um, 6, 7, I think, somewhere right, at, right in there. Now, brothers, verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, 
How will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Remember, sarcasm. How, how am I going to benefit you? How's that going to help if everybody's all hopped up and speaking in tongues? How's that going to help if I don't bring some insight? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? What's he doing? He's saying, everybody in your church, you want all the same gift. Everybody's clamoring for the same gift. He says, that's not the way the body's designed. You need a multitude of gifts to be the church. You're all trying to be the orchestra, and you want to play one note. You've got B-flat down. Good luck with that. He says, and you're talking about a time where they're going to rally the military, and depending on what the trumpet blew, the certain tune, it would either be charge or retreat. You know, kind of a, somewhere this, you know, in the morning, military plays reveille, you know, taps, you know, you know, in the evening. Well, they got one note, he's saying. How do you know what to do if everybody's trying to be exactly the same? It's not helping anybody. You don't know whether you're advancing the gospel or you're retreating from it because everybody's trying to be on the same, the same pitch. What sounds nice for unity, but it's horrible for the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. And so, he's again, he's laying this on thick. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And again, this is harsh language. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, how will I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and a speaker will be a foreigner to me. Now again, if, if, if we can't talk, we're both foreigners to each other and doesn't get anywhere. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He says, stop chasing, trying to all speak in tongues, and start working on building up the church. For building up the church, Paul means expand the gospel and grow up mature Christians. Create disciples, more of them, and better disciples. Grow up. He has said grow up numerous times throughout this letter and in 14. That's what's at stake for him. So now he goes right from there into this next passage. And the reason I put these together is because for some of us in church, we have yanked these verses out of context and we've done some strange things with them. So here we go. Moving forward. I'm going to be at verse, um, verse 34 now. The woman, the women, should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, a cold reading of that sounds very harsh, right? That, that sounds like the sit there and be quiet rule. And the problem is we tend to yank this out and build entire theologies just on that passage right there. So 
let me unpack what's going on very quickly. Right before it, Paul is talking about Paul is talking about prophecy right before it. So if you want to back up just a little bit, I don't have these on the screen, but if you want to just, just see, right before it, Paul does this. Verse 27. If any speak in tongue, let there be only two or three at the most. And each in turn let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Then he changes to prophecy. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others, and this is the important part, weigh what is said. So what's going on is when it was speaking in tongues, as I believe it should be interpreted that this is an actual language, so it's clearly miraculous. Okay? It's clearly miraculous because that is self-evident at that point. So there is God at work. Now, when it came to a prophecy, it wasn't necessarily in a foreign language, but it was foretelling or foretelling the future. But that one could easily be faked in that. Because you could just send with them and say, hey, I got a word from God. God says we should all do this. You know, all follow me. Go with me now. I'm the leader. I'm in charge. That's what God said. And so what needed to happen in that context was it needed to be weighed. It needed to be considered carefully. And he's saying that there is a role in the church by someone that would be in authority to be a questioner of what was going on. And so when a prophecy came through, when somebody expressed a prophecy, there would be this moment of discernment carried out by someone that was recognized as authoritative, as trustworthy, as a shepherd in that moment. So now, with that in mind, go back to what this past said. Um, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, that whole ask the husband at home is a strange passage if you don't understand what's going on behind it. It's, it's not saying, hey, don't raise your hand and say, can you please go over that last point again? I didn't catch it from my notes. What it's saying is that they didn't want the situation where a husband would stand up and give a prophecy if that was the gift that he was receiving and then his own wife stand up and question him on that. Can you imagine how awkward that would be today if we did that? We would all get really nervous in the moment of that. And that would be disruptive. And so it's not nobody says a word, keep your mouth shut. And that, But in that moment, be submissive and do not take the authority and begin to be the questioner. It is super quiet in here right now. Because we, all, we have to also consider another passage in the same letter. Okay, and this is where this gets really difficult because some of it's going to seem like Paul's in contradiction for, of himself. Go back to chapter 11. 
back on chapter 11. He says this, verse 3, okay? Now, this is going to seem strange, okay? This is your first time in, in a Bible study like this. I, I get this is, this is strange stuff, so stay with me as long as you can. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, he, he sets up a framework that we push back again. Many of us push back really fast. Because it sounds like he's got a hierarchy set up, and it's really power imbalanced. He's talking about submission, and I'm going to suggest that submission is probably the most hated word in the Bible. Because we're all for it when somebody else is doing it, right? We struggle with this. Let me tell you what submission is not. It is not the husband taking control and saying, I'm in charge. Okay. Notice what he says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. So there is this submission that every man is called to be under and in submission to Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Now we've got all this language about head going on. Watch how it keeps going. And the head of Christ is God. So there's kind of this, which appears to be an order to it. But it's submission, submission, submission. And we're following the role of Jesus that submitted his will to God. And watch how he continues and packs this. Um, uh, keep going with the, with the verse. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, the thing about this is Paul is going to now tap into a cultural moment. And the idea for a man to bring his, his toga or his shawl up over his head was a sign of something. And he said he dishonors his head. It doesn't mean he dishonors his physical head. Remember, who's the head of the man? Christ. There's where the dishonor, that's the head that's being described. But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And since the same as if, and and since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, again, we're, we're so weird now. Okay, I get it if this is hard. Culturally, in that culture, if a woman's head was uncovered, it was a sign. Is she gathered with the church? It was a sign that she's available. It would be very similar to any married person going to a club or a bar or some social event and taking off their wedding ring because they want to be able to flirt while they're there. So you can see where that would be dishonoring to her head, not her physical head, to her husband. This, And so God is saying, Paul's reminding, come into submission to one another. Now, why should a man's head not be covered? Because remember, you dishonor his head, Christ. We have found numerous, historically we found numerous statues of the Caesars, and many of them will have the head covered. I've got one of Caesar Augustus right here. If you notice, see, see the statue. Notice how his head is covered. There's another statue also of Caesar Augustus that's in this relief. This is lots of very important people in this, in this relief here. But if you'll zoom in on the one that's in the middle there, you'll notice everybody else has a, a laurel wreath around their heads. One has his head covered. That's Caesar Augustus. 
His head's covered. Why? He's in charge. He is the ruler supreme. There is none ahead of him. And so you see how that would be dishonoring if we came to church. And culturally speaking, culture's changed now, but culturally speaking, if we were to assume that type of headship over Jesus. And so we have such a struggle with this as far as submission. And so what Paul is saying is in that moment, he does have a, a structure set up. But we've done so many goofy things with this idea of submission that we've abused it in so many different ways that, again, we think what it means is for the husband that he's got the remote and he does the driving. Okay? And he gets to make all the decisions that there are. That's not what a Christian marriage looks like. You can find again and again and again all throughout Scripture this idea of submission to one another. And a Christian marriage is a husband and wife coming together and working through and praying together and discerning together and seeking God's leading together. And and understanding that God will hold the man accountable for that. That's who he holds accountable. You never find, you never find in Scripture an instruction or a command for the husband to take authority in it, to force his wife to submit. It is always willingly given by the wife. That's where the the command is. And I've done numerous weddings and I will read a passage out of Ephesians that begins, Ephesians 5, that begins with submit to one another as in Christ. And then I'll have the instructions for a wife and then a husband. And for the wife says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then I will always pause at that moment as I read these passages. And then I will look at the husband and I'll say to this groom, and I'll say, it sounds like you got the best end of this deal, but Paul has some words for you. And then the next words are, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you see what just happened there? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He laid down his life for it. When we talk about Biblical headship, this is not a sense of, I'm large, I'm in charge, I've always wanted this, everybody bow down to me. Paul would say, no, that's where you dishonor your head. But the way a husband brings honor into the family and serves in this role is he lays down his wants, his desires, his goals for the good of the family. And he's putting it all on the line. And husbands, we've got to step up to that. It has been hijacked by the world, and this idea of submission has been twisted and perverted in so many different ways, and it's been so abused. We've got to reclaim it in such a way where anyone will look at that, any wife will look at that and say, why wouldn't I want a husband that does that? I have yet to see a marriage blow up where the husband is laying down his life. 
and a wife is out of love and respect submitting to that. It just doesn't happen. Because Jesus is the head of that, which is Paul's point all along. And so, so what's Paul asking to do? Back, back to this. Again, this is, this is why this is so difficult. We've got so many pieces of this. He's saying, he's saying, but did you notice, I'm sorry, did you notice that what he instructs for the wives, for the women? He doesn't say, don't pray and don't prophesy. He says, just make sure you do it in a certain form, in a certain way, in a certain manner, with a certain attitude. So how do you take 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14? Let me get them. What I believe is what Paul is saying is that women were praying and prophesying in the church. It was not the just sit there and be quiet rule and we'll let you know when you can you know, say something. It was they were participating in, in the service. They were speaking that. But when it came to a moment of authority... And there need to be some discernment. They did not embarrass their husbands. They did not step out of a certain cultural boundary that was there that would have be, seemed scandalous and awkward and tension-filled in the church at that moment. So Paul says, out of respect for the way God set this up, wives, submit your husbands. You see this in another passage, and we've got to get to it really quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you want to write this reference down. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Again, it sounds like it's a sit there and be quiet deal. He's Again, he's referring to that moment of, notice the language, when there's this authoritative teaching coming along. Again, so women were prophesying, but there's this moment of when it comes into question, when it has to be weighed out to make sure that this is actually from God and not somebody's simple agenda going off, that there would be somebody that was respected. I believe these were the elders and the shepherds in the church. And they would weigh out. They would question. They would ask. They would weigh out and say, is this from God or not? And the way God set that up, that was a role that he gave to the men in the church. Qualified men in the church. Not just anybody, but certain men in the church. And that's what I think God, what Paul is getting at here. And we've done all kinds of crazy stuff with that. But we've all interpreted on some, some level, but this is not one that we need to fear and be afraid of. Because once again, the challenge is, if we step up, this is a place for the Spirit to take off and grow and expand the gospel. Because that is Paul's Number one concern. So I'm going to end with this. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Okay, again, he's saying this to everybody. When everybody comes together, everybody brings their gifts. Everybody brings what they, what they serve and have. He says, let all things be done for the building for Paul, what we do here in this gathering matters because Christ is preached and Christ is experienced as we love one another, build each other up, 
submit our own personal desires, whims, and wants to the one that submitted himself to God, laid down his life, and took our sin on a cross. And aren't you so grateful that he did? Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that my words today feel so inadequate to capture this. So I'm going to pray that your spirit does with this what your spirit promises and that you will take this teaching and you will help it to resonate and you help it to be in, in alive in this church. Father, as we be the body of Christ together in this place, as we share our gifts with one another, as we fall under submission to you, Father, as we take your word seriously, as we do our best to be consistent with it, Father, would you use this? Father, I, I want, as you told the Corinthian church, prayers as people come in and they're among us, they say there's something different there. There's something there that I need in my life. There's something there that draws me back time and time again. And that is you, Father, your spirit, your healing, your gospel message. Let us be proclaimers of that. Paul was passionate about that, Father. Give us his zeal for that. Father, I pray. I pray for anything that I've misspoken today. That you would reconcile that and you would be glorified even in the absence of my words. Father, I'm so grateful for the one that did submit his life. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.